Welcome to Sozo's Podcast, a student ministry of Victory Family Church located in Cranberry Township, PA. We're glad you're here. We meet every Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8.30. Ah, check us out on Instagram at SozoYTH. If you don't already know who I am, my name is Mark Consolo, and I'm a close friend of Pastor Ben and Alyssa's, and I, I can't overemphasize how much love and respect that I have for those two amazing leaders. Why don't we lift it up for them tonight? Come on. We, uh, we got that on the recording, right? Okay, great. Now I can be honest. I really just hang out with them so that I can hold Mila. It's, is that Okay. I think it is. You could tell me after the service if it's not. But aside from that, I've been an employee here at Victory Family Church for the past three years. I started off as the web developer. Then I became, I'm sorry, I started off as the middle school ministry assistant. Then I became the web developer. And about a month and a half ago, I became the communication director here at the church. Woo! That's my friend. That's my boss right there who just made that. Woo! (laughs) It's been an amazing journey. But you know what? Aside from being a friend and aside from being an employee of this church, the thing that I'm most excited to say about myself tonight is that I'm a man who made Jesus the Lord of his life when he was only 15 years old. Show of hands, who's made that decision already? Who's made that decision? That's awesome. But you know, guys, I want to shoot straight with you tonight. I didn't make that decision in the middle of perfection. I didn't make the decision in the middle of sunshine and rainbows, okay? I made the decision to follow Jesus, to make him the Lord of my life, right in the middle of still smoking cigarettes, right in the middle of smoking marijuana pretty much every single day, right in the middle of abusing pain medication, right in the middle of going down the path of alcoholism. I made the decision to follow Christ at the lowest point of self-esteem in my life when I didn't believe that I could go to college And I didn't believe that I could have a happy and successful marriage. And I didn't even believe in myself enough to trust that I'd physically be able to drive a car. But you know what? Here I am 18 years later, and I can say that having trusted in Jesus and getting to know Jesus and battling with Jesus, standing right by my side for the past 18 years, he delivered me from cigarettes. He delivered me from marijuana. He delivered me from pain medication. He delivered me from alcoholism. In Christ, I went on to get my bachelor's degree. Then I went on to get my master's degree. This July, I'm about to celebrate nine years of a happy, successful marriage. And praise God, hallelujah, I'm about to start shouting, I got my driver's license on the first try. Amen. (laughs) On the first try. So guys, if you see me excited up here tonight, it's because I'm a man who made Jesus the Lord of my life. And then for the past 18 years, I've seen him be the Lord of my life. I'm a man who knows that God is good, that God is good all the time, and that his goodness is chasing me down all the days of my life. And I'm excited because that goodness is here for you tonight. But even though I've been walking with Jesus for 18 years, I'm still right in the middle of the fight. I get... My praise on, okay, on the weekends, just like y'all. 
I read my Bible every day. I spend prayer time every single day. And yet the fight continues. And I want you to hear something tonight. You are not exempt from the fight. You are not an exception to the rule. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, there is a God and he's madly in love with you. But right on the other side of that equation, there is an enemy. His name is Satan, and he's coming after you. The Bible says he's your adversary, that he's your accuser. And it says he has one goal in this life, and that is to steal, to kill, and to destroy everything good in you. So the reason we're here tonight, Sozo, is so that you can ask yourself the question, What are you going to do about it? How are you supposed to respond to a relentless enemy that you can't even see? That's why I love the Bible. That's why God gave us the Bible. And that's why you need to run to the Bible because it's in its pages that he tells you exactly how you were supposed to respond. And so that's where I'm going right now. If you've got your Bible in hand or on your phone or I got it here on my computer, You can go to Ephesians 6. I'm going to be starting at verse 10, and I'm going to be reading out of the message translation here. And God's speaking wisdom to you tonight through his servant Paul when he says this. God is strong, and he wants you to be strong. So, comma. Now, I want to stop right there. You don't need a grammar lesson, but I want to camp on this for a sec because he wrote that sentence very purposefully. Basically, what he's saying is, God wants you to be strong, so if you want to be strong, you're going to have to do what I'm about to tell you to do. So let's go back and read it that way. God is strong, and he wants you to be strong. So if you want to be strong, here's what you got to do. you got to take everything the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, and do what with them? Put them to use. I don't know what that sounds like to you tonight, but to me, that sounds like somebody who's right in the heat of the battle. And he goes on to say, put them to use so that you will be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. I'll tell you right now, Paul sounds an awful lot like my mom. Okay, when I was growing up and I was going out to play, we lived in a rough neighborhood, and I'd be going out the door and she'd say, wait up, bud. Remember, if somebody hits you, you Hit them back, okay? I don't know if, if Pastor Ben buys into that, that type of uh, stuff there. But m- my mom gave me permission to defend myself. And you know what? Your heavenly father is doing the same thing here. He's giving you fatherly advice. And he's telling you, you've got to stand up for yourself. He goes on to emphasize the importance of this thing. This isn't an afternoon athletic contest that we'll just walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. A life or death, fight to the finish against the devil and all of his angels. So be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Towards the end of this verse, he says what they are. He says they are indispensable weapons. I want to ask you tonight, have you ever 
read your Bible like that? With passion? To realize that God is telling you to take up arms and take up weapons and to go to battle? I hope you're seeing right now that the Bible isn't soft, the Bible isn't weak, and neither is the God who penned its pages. He's reaching down through the cosmos, through the ages tonight, to tell you that you've got a fight, you've got a battle, and we're going to see tonight that that battle is waging for your heart. And so what we need to do is diligently guard and defend our hearts. And so that's why we've titled this message, You Can't Have Access to My Heart. I'm telling you, the devil is coming after it. And so you need to be the one to put a hand up and say, no, you can't have access to my heart. So let's pray as we get into this. God, I thank you that you made every single heart in this room tonight. And you've placed visions and you've placed dreams and you've placed desires. You have huge plans. And I thank you, God, that even though there is an enemy and we know he will attack, we know that you know how he does it. And we thank you that you are equipping us tonight to say no to the enemy, to stand our ground in Christ and win our battles. We thank you that you care and you love us enough to give us your word to form our beliefs on. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen, amen. So I want to kick this off by sharing an illustration that drives the point home and There's really no better way to do that than to share a personal story. And by that, I mean a uh, stupid husband moment of mine, okay? Any husbands out there? Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about then, stupid husband moment. You know, maybe your wife refers to it just as you being an idiot, but uh, I feel like that's kind of offensive, so I just go back to stupid husband moment. I'll I'll stick with that. So my wife, Sarah, who played an acoustic guitar up here on the stage tonight, it was a few years ago. I heard a woo. Okay, I'll take it. It was a few years ago, and we're up hanging with our friends Eric and Kathy Rojas, who live here in Cranberry. And uh, we're just hanging out, playing games, eating food, talking, all that good stuff. And we look up, and all of a sudden, it's 1 in the morning. And we're a little worried because we've got to get up really early and go to worship the very next day. So we're kind of in a rush. We grab all of our stuff real quickly. We get in the car, drive 30 minutes south to where we live. And I walk up to the door. I'm dead tired. And I just reach my hand out, and I say, Sarah... Give me the keys. But nothing lands in my hand. And I sense a disturbance in the force. And I look over, and she's got her head down. And she looks up with a slight tear in her eye. And before she even said anything, I knew what she had done. But I still asked her to tell me anyway because I just wanted her to feel bad about it. You know, stupid husband moment. I know, we're husbands. And I said, Sarah, where's the keys? And she said, I forgot them at Eric's. Now, I wish I could tell you guys that I was like, dearest wife, it's okay. We all make our fair share of mistakes, me more than most. (laughs) The ladies are like, no husband ever says that. And I'm like, it's okay. But again, I wish I could have responded that way, but really what I did was I kind of retracted back to a third grade mentality, and I totally threw a fit. I think I may have stomped my feet. I definitely, (laughs) she's back there, I definitely brushed past her shoulder and slammed my car door, and we drove all the way back up to Eric's in silence, 
And then we got there. All their lights are out. Their doors are locked. We didn't want to wake anybody up. So we sneak around to the back of their house, and we check their sliding glass door. And it's open. So we go in. We find our key. And I'm like, Sarah, you know what? Let's just go to sleep in their living room without them knowing, like creepy. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, let's just get up super early in the morning, and then we'll leave. And so it worked. We did that. We got home. We hurry up and get inside. We get ready for worship. And I'm like, you know what, Sarah? Clearly, I have things under control. So let me drive, okay? So we get all of our stuff. We're in a hurry again. She goes out the door. I go behind her. I close the door. And in, in that moment, I knew I messed up. She turns around. She says, Mark, where are the keys? My head's down. I look up with a slight tear in my eye. And now I have to be the one to say, I just locked them in the house. And so what a pair we were. We just locked ourselves out of the house for the second time in under six hours. And we go into a whirlwind, trying every door, trying every window, and nothing was open except for one window. And I brought a picture of it here. Okay, and it's, it's not that big, convenient window that's by the steps. It's that little Willy Wonka-looking window right there that's like, Six and a half feet off the ground. And all I got to say is praise God that he made my wife for such a time as this because that little five foot, hundred pound frame, I was able to lift her up and shove her through the window while all of our neighbors were looking and everything. And Sarah came to the rescue that day. We got to worship on time. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. To this day, we still leave it unlocked because we never know what we're going to do. But, you know, that story could have been a lot shorter and a lot simpler had we just left our doors unlocked. But why don't we do that? We lock our doors because we have precious items on the inside that we don't want potential criminals to break in and steal. But if we're willing to put locks on our doors to keep people from stealing our Xbox... Why aren't we willing to put locks on our hearts to keep the devil from stealing our joy? Did you know that your heart is the most important part of who you are? Proverbs 4.23 says it this way. Above all else, above everything else you could do, guard your heart. Why? Because your heart determines the course of of your life. And yet even though it's that important, so many of us, myself included, leave our hearts wide open for the devil to just come in and go out as he pleases, sowing seeds of anger and discord and disunity and greed and lust. We're letting him lead our lives. And then we're over here saying to God, why can't I win? We need to go back to Ephesians 6. Where Paul says at the beginning, God is strong, and he wants you to be strong. Why does God want you strong? He wants you that way because when you feel strong, you feel fit to pursue his calling. But on the other side of that equation, Satan wants you weak. He doesn't want you to get your blessing. He doesn't want you to realize all that you are and all that you're capable of doing. He doesn't want you impacting the world for Christ. He wants to get in your heart and make you feel weak, and make you feel unsure, and make you feel insecure, because when he does that, you don't feel fit to pursue. 
Think about it like, um, like the Steelers and the Patriots, okay? If you're an honest football fan, you just know with that matchup, Steelers probably going to lose, okay? But let's say it's the day before game day, and you find out that Tom Brady has some big injury, and he has to sit out the whole game. That changes your perspective all of a sudden. Why? Because you know that that momentary weakness can severely limit their ability to win the game. And that's what Satan wants for you. But what does God want? He wants you strong. He wants you free. He wants you connected. He wants you growing. He wants you healed. If you don't believe it yet, take a look at God's heart when he's talking to Joshua as he's taking over for Moses as the leader of the people of Israel. The very first thing God says to Joshua in Joshua 1 is this. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people And again, he says, be strong and very courageous. So question, does God want us strong? Answer, yes. But why don't we feel that way? Is it because God lied to us and we actually just aren't strong? Well, we know that can't be the case because it's impossible for God to lie. So maybe it's not that God has lied to us Maybe it's that we've opened our heart to the father of lies and we're listening to his voice a little bit more than God's. That's why we need to guard our hearts. That's why we need to save them for Christ and run to him. But now here we are, the pivotal moment of any church service where you're like, well, how do I do that? Because I could stand up here and shout all I want, but if we don't say how, there's no fruit. So one key way that Paul tells us to do this in a later part of uh, Ephesians 6, he says this, this is for keeps, a life or death fight, be prepared. You are up against far more than you can handle on your own. So watch this, take all the help you can get. Take all the help you can get. You know, I'm convinced that our society is trying to get us to believe that the word help equals weakness. And that there's really no greater honor than in fighting alone so that at the end you can stand and proclaim that you are self-made. That you are self-made. You might find yourself saying tonight, I don't need to be here every weekend. I don't need to listen to this old dude talk about stuff he doesn't understand. Yeah, I've got my battle, but it's my battle, and I know how to fight it on my own. Guys, that's not honor. That's pride. And pride is foolishness. The Bible says that pride comes before a fall. And I'm telling you tonight, if you're in a life or death fight, the last thing you want to do is fall. You need to be able to stand strong. You need to be able to go in with as much backup and as much help as humanly and as spiritually possible. And so that's why you need to push away pride and embrace humility. Humility says, I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers. But if I want to be victorious, I need all the help I can get. Humility is when you recognize and are able to utilize all the resources that God has for you. 
in humility, you're able to say, no, I need to get my butt into church to get myself straight. I need to listen to the podcast midweek so I can hear Alyssa bringing fire again, right? Last week, that was awesome. I need to go over to these other four churches. Ben's clapping at that one. (laughs) I need to go over to these other four churches and listen to their podcast so I can expand my understanding. I need to get to the bookstore and get that material that Pastor Ben was telling me I should get. I need to open up in my small group and share with them a struggle that I've been going through and get prayer. Every time you do this, you're putting on armor. Think about it this way. Show of hands, has anybody ever been paintballing before? Okay, it's fun, right? But the very first time you go paintballing, you're probably not thinking about how much fun it's going to be. You're thinking about how much it's going to hurt. At least that's what I was thinking about the first time I went. No shame, I almost cried. Okay, I almost cried thinking about how much it was going to hurt. And so that's why I decided, "Mm -mm, I'm going to get ready for this fight. And while all the rest of my friends showed up in nothing but tennis shoes and jeans and a t-shirt, I showed up in full battle attire, okay? I'm saying I had long johns on, I had a pair of sweatpants on, then I had a pair of jeans on, then I had a baseball cup on top of that, then I had a pair of windbreaker pants on, I had three shirts, a long sleeve shirt, a hoodie, a thick winter jacket, I had a beanie on, the mask, I had gloves, thick wool socks, hiking boots. I brought a picture here. I looked like Randy from a Christmas story, okay? I was just like waddling around on the field like this. Couldn't put my arms down. But you know what? In all of that armor, I was fearless, okay? I ran around that field, jumping over stuff, sliding under stuff. I was Master Chief out on that field, okay, for you Halo fans. There was even a time where the other the other team was in their base, and my, my whole crew's like, how do we get in there? How do we? And I was like, Shh, I'll just sacrifice myself. I waddled right into the base, and they were just like, like six guys just lit me up with paintballs. But I could do that because I was fearless, because I was in my armor. Every time you listen to a podcast, you're putting on a layer of protection. Every time you're here in church and you're leaning in to listen, You're putting on a layer of protection. Every time you go to your pastor and you ask for some wisdom and you apply it, you're putting on a layer of protection. Remember, you're guarding the most important part of who you are. So don't do it alone. Do it God's way. Take all the help you can get. The other key way we guard our heart against all the attacks of the enemy is to put on the one specific piece of armor God made just for your heart. And if you don't hear anything else from this message, this is the section that you need to pay attention to. Ephesians 6, 13 and 14, Paul says, Take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Guard your waist with truth and watch this. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why do we have to put righteousness over our hearts? You see, when we leave it open, the enemy weasels his way in there, points a finger, accuses you, and he's trying to get you to feel shame and guilt and discouragement. 
And I'm not telling you that because I read it in the Bible. I'm telling you that because he does it to me sometimes on a daily basis. Okay, even though I'm 33, he still shows up in my life and points a finger at me and accuses me of things I did when I was 21. If I sin during the day, he throws it in my face and he says, see, you haven't changed. If you really loved God, you'd be over this behavior by now. You're a fake. And even when I'm working here and I'm sitting over in church, I swear it's like the devil pulls up a chair right into my cubicle and he says, you can't do this. You're you're not creative enough. You're not smart enough. You don't have enough resources. They're going to find out. And I'll tell you, when I, when I start buying into those lies, I feel depressed. And worse off, I feel unworthy of God. And I just want to be transparent with you guys tonight. I mean, we're in church, right? I want to be transparent and say that when I feel depressed and when I feel unworthy, do you know what I do? I clean. Yep. I clean my house, okay? That might not have been the reaction that it was building up to, okay, or very manly. But that's what I do. I get home. I toss my stuff down. I start mopping the floor. I start wiping the countertops. I start vacuuming. I start straightening stuff up around the house. And just between you and I, even though Sarah tries to talk me down, I kind of think she secretly likes those moments for some reason, Uh, as I'm getting stuff done around the house. But why do I respond that way? I respond that way because when I feel unworthy, I get in this like ultra performance mindset. And I'm like, I'm going to prove the devil wrong. I'm going to prove that I can do this. And I try to climb out of the pit. But every time I do, I just slide right back down. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you identify with that. Why does that happen? even though we're trying so hard. Two scriptures. Isaiah 64 says, your greatest deeds, the best you could ever do, is but a filthy rag compared to God's goodness. Romans 3.23, we've all fallen short of God's glory and goodness. Are those verses there to make you feel bad about yourself? No. They're there to remind you that your good deeds are never good enough for God. And watch this. Your good deeds are never good enough for you. You can strive and strive and strive and strive to prove yourself and everybody else and the devil and God to who you really are, but you're always going to find yourself slipping back down into that pit, into that spot of guilt. So what do we need to do? We need to put righteousness over our heart. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. Not the self-righteousness that you've earned from your good works, but from the righteousness that he's given to you as a gift in Christ. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of who? Of God. So what does that mean? 
That means when Jesus hung on the cross and he took your sin and he took your judgment, you took on his righteousness. Your righteousness is his righteousness. It's not something you earned. It was given. It's not something you maintain. No, it's just who you are. So much so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus. He doesn't see what you did five years ago. He doesn't see what you did five months ago. He doesn't see what you did five minutes ago. Whether it was a bad deed or whether it was a good deed, he only sees Jesus. So I want you to think about two questions tonight. If God sees Jesus when he looks at you, who do you see when you look in the mirror? If God sees Jesus when he looks at you, then who are you to try to win this fight by your own efforts? I'm going to tell you right now, Satan could care less about your efforts. He's going to attack, he's going to accuse, and he's going to try to condemn you. And I want, I want you to get serious here. Have you ever felt condemned in church? You know, maybe, maybe during the message, you felt ugly before God. Maybe during worship, you felt unworthy to raise your hands. I don't want you to feel bad about that. I want you to know you're not alone. I've been on that adult worship team for 15 years. And there are still times when I'm on that stage while everybody else is looking on. And I feel so unworthy. I said to my wife tonight before I came up here, I said, I'm so unworthy to even deliver this message. Why? Because in my heart, I'm like, I'm still struggling with the stuff I'm trying to tell them about. And God's trying to tell me I'm not seeking after perfection. I just want somebody that's going to say yes and be vulnerable. Somebody that's going to stop and look at the moment and say, why do I feel ugly before God right now? Why do I feel so not confident before him? 1 John 3 says this, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So if we don't have confidence, that means we have condemnation in our heart. Who put it there? The enemy. But who is the one who let him in? Are you guarding your heart tonight? And if so, what are you guarding it with? I want everybody to stand to their feet and, and gather around for worship. But I don't want you to just gather for worship. I want you to gather in worship. And for you, that might mean that you have to close your eyes or you lift your hands or you kneel before God. This is just your time before him. And while they just continue to play a little music, I'm going to read something that I felt led to write. And I want you to hear it as if it is God speaking his fatherly advice just to you. 
thank you, God, for these moments. Your presence is real, and you're meeting us. My child, my beloved, start laying down your weapons. Start laying down your defenses. They're not strong enough to help you win this battle. Lay them down and take up the righteousness of Jesus. Learn to see yourself in him. Born again, raised to life, made new. In fact, if the enemy tells you something about you, you don't look at you anymore. You look to Jesus. And if what the enemy says does not line up with who Jesus is, then it doesn't line up with you. When the enemy tells you you're not good enough, you say, in Christ I'm righteous. When he tells you you'll never amount to anything, you say, in Christ all things are possible. And if he tells you a physical affliction is going to limit your life, you say, in Christ I'm already healed and whole. I want you to know there is no condemnation that can touch you when you're found in Christ. And I want you to know it's not about how good you are. It's not about how much good you've done. It's about running to the only one who is good and letting him become your armor.